episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. I'm joined today by Robert Von Firth, a Managing Director in Stout's Investment Banking Group. Rob has more than 20 years of experience executing mergers and acquisitions, debt and equity financing, capital raising, board advisory, valuation and strategic alternatives analysis for middle market companies and large corporate segments. He also has deep experience in the consumer, retail, and food and beverage sectors, and you'll see his name in the upcoming September issue of Middle Market Growth magazine. Rob joins me today to revisit some of the themes of his magazine article and to dive a bit deeper into M&A activity in the consumer product sector. Rob, thanks for joining me. Hi, Katie. Good morning. Good to, good to be with you. So a, a major challenge for consumer brands right now is how customer needs have changed over the last five months. I'll say, speaking for myself, other than a few cloth face masks, I'm not sure I've bought a single right. article of clothing since mid-March at the start of the lockdowns. What are you seeing apparel, beauty, and other product categories doing to stay relevant and ultimately to stay alive in this environment? Yeah, it's um, it's obviously interesting times. You know, as a banker covering the consumer space, you know, you relate to kind of products and uh, purchase cycles and things you would do that everyone can really relate to. And in this pandemic, everyone has really focused on their needs and how they spend uh, money in, in different ways. So your comment about focusing on masks is pretty on point and very relevant. But I do think there's a distinction between really surviving and being relevant if you're a brand in the apparel and beauty space. So, you know, when the pandemic first hit, there was a necessary focus on uh, survivability and, and companies were really focused on liquidity. Uh, there were a lot of debt financings, a lot of fixed income offerings. You know, companies had to pull their own oxygen mask on first. So before figuring out how to be relevant in this you know, dramatically different time, there was a need to just make sure you had the operating capability, the access to liquidity and capital to, to hold you out for at least a couple of quarters, maybe longer. So that's past us. Today, to be relevant in, in some of these consumer product categories, you know, you're really down to the basics. Um, you're, you know, apparel and accessories business are really focused on products that have a lot of uh, utility, um, practicality, product categories that are focused on at price points that are obtainable, comfortable basic products, um, you know, with some style thrown in there too. And a direct consumer channel play is really paramount. Um, a good example over the weekend, the New York Times read a pretty interesting article on a company out of California called Entire World. And Entire World is an online direct to consumer apparel company that has you know, focused really on comfort clothing basics with some style, uh, not super cheap, but affordable luxury, but really focused on comfort, attainability, and practicality for, you know, all the relevant reasons people are not going outside spending a lot of money right now on things that aren't serving a very basic need. And on the beauty side, you see sort of the, the mirror image of that, where there was a real wholesale pivot to uh, safety products and sanitizers and things like that from all the large you know, high-end consumer product beauty uh, uh, branded companies uh, really pivoted very quickly out of necessity. So just on the apparel side where you have a focus on utility and basics, on the beauty side, it's sort of the same thing. You know, pivot to products that are really a necessity. Um, but I think I think we definitely hit a bottom in terms of the focus on uh, utility and basics. And uh, you're starting to see a little bit more emphasis, at least in the advertising and the positioning from companies like, uh, like an ASOP 
that is making sure as we spend so much time inside, you'd be mindful that you want to buy products that, for example, make your house smell a little bit better. Uh, candles that um, are, are pretty and maybe a little bit more than basic, you're starting to see some push to elevate the spend, not just on the basics and the practical, but up a little bit. So I, I'm hopeful that I think we've seen a slight turn um, you know, after three or four months of being very much in this sort of comfort basics spending paradigm. Mm -hmm. And from the perspective of a buyer who's evaluating companies in the apparel or beauty space, what qualities make a business attractive to acquire right now? Yeah, I think in this market, there's a, a, an increased appreciation for history of success, history of profitability, uh, high cash flow. I mean, things, uh, good management teams, things that were really always out there and always sort of boxes that needed to be checked. I would say add to that now. You have to have a brand that speaks to authenticity to its core customer base. And ideally, that core customer base can be um, expanded and scale and you know, blown out and, and access different broader channels of distribution. You, know, you, see, you see a lot of athletes and celebrities endorse products for a reason, because they're able to transition a brand from a core narrow focus um, and, and expand it uh, with very broad appeal. Uh, an example these days, I mean, people are spending a lot of time inside, obviously, at home. Anything that is sold to young folks gaming at home is doing quite well. The demand is quite huge for that. So you can imagine a lot of products and brands that are focused on that sort of very narrow community and doing very well in this environment. You know, one would have to question, is that kind of an appealing end market that can broaden into a broader lifestyle? broader channel distribution, you know, unclear, but I'm sure there's going to be some brands that attempt to do that after the pandemic kind of eases. Getting back to the authenticity, you'll, you'll see brands that align themselves with celebrities and athletes that will um, create a sub-brand that will be purely direct-to-consumer distributed. There was an example of that uh, last week where uh, ELF partnered with Alyssa Keys, and she holds a lot of authenticity for a younger audience that I think ELF wants to tap into with the channel. And I would say other, other categories, that there's been a lot of recent activity in, in men's grooming as well. And you've seen a few transactions where even though it's wholesale to retail products, they tend to be the right boxes to be sold in like a Target and a Walmart and Edgewell had just recently acquired a pre-level, which is you know, a, a very well-positioned men's grooming product platform. Digital presence, a possible omni-channel play is, is critical to being uh, an enticing opportunity from an M&A standpoint. I mean, at the moment, I still think the products have to be affordable. They have to be humanely sourced. They have to be packaged properly. They have to be better for you. Um, those, those themes will return in terms of the M&A activity attracted to products that hit on what had been sort of the normal boxes that needed to be checked before we entered into the pandemic. But again, as I said, at the moment, things that are most important are strength of a management team, authenticity of a brand, history of profitability and cash flow. And that just speaks to ultimately the financeability of some of these transactions as well. We've seen a spate of well-publicized bankruptcy filings of clothing retailers during COVID, J. Crew, Lord & Taylor, Men's Warehouse, many others. Do you expect investors and corporate acquirers to be interested in buying some of these legacy brands if they can get them at a discount or have some of the upstarts and online brands that you've been talking about, have those made these legacy retailers more or less irrelevant? Yeah, I think it's a combination. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you mentioned Lord & Taylor. 
the department stores had obviously been struggling well before the pandemic, and it was just really the, the, the final straw for many of them. Neiman Marcus included though they had leverage issues. Uh, I think some of those, you know, Brooks Brothers, uh, you mentioned um, a men's warehouse part of Taylor Brands. I think some of those absolutely have a brand strength and relevancy as long as you know the chemistry has changed up. You know, they can't go back to do the same thing they have been doing clearly. Um, uh, balance sheets aside, uh, I think the demand for the kind of offerings and kind of positioning just ha have been slowly deteriorating. But some of those brands can absolutely certainly come back, just have to be positioned differently, have to uh, offer a service and an experience that's different, have to be omni-channel, I would imagine. Um, they just have to do something different. Some of them may not be relevant enough to come back, but I think that the strength of some of those brands still will very much resonate, even with a younger, a younger crowd in the future. They just have to be positioned better. You know, and it's not just, it's not just the apparel retailers too. Other retailers like Cyril Taub, uh, GNC, you know, brands that really spoke to an enthusiast and user for purposes of the pandemic just couldn't survive. They, they definitely will have a place coming back. As I said, the strategy just has to be different. And unlike a lot of retailers, grocery stores, and many food and beverage brands have done quite well during the pandemic while everyone was stuck at home and buying food to eat in their homes rather than out in restaurants. Are there particular types of companies or brands within that food and beverage or grocery space that you'd point to as being in high demand right now from an M&A standpoint? Yeah, so it's true. Everything on the grocery retailing side is is, is quite robust. Um, you know, it's not unsurprising to see uh, Albertson's IPO in the middle of the pandemic, um, given the, the amount of uh, growth and demand in, in, in the channel. You know, if you take a step back, uh, spending on food products, just as an example, tended to be roughly 50% grocery, 50% food service. You know, with the pandemic, that's swung wildly. You know, the real question is whether or not there's going to be a permanent reset to have it be 60, 65, 40, 35% food service. Nobody knows, but I do think there will be a temporary, at least a temporary reset to some degree. On the grocery side, a couple of interesting brands and concepts have really started to ramp up growth in the U.S. and, and, and both are overseas grocery chains. One is Aldi um, and the other is Lidl. And, and Aldi, just as an example, um, you know, it's kind of a per perfect storm for, for, for them. They're a grocery retailer. They're very much focused on private label and affordable price. Um, I think they're planning that uh, be at, at least 2,000 stores by the end of this year, or 100, I believe. That is an example of you know, a grocery retailer that is so well positioned from a price point standpoint, uh, from a product offering, um, and it just happens to be in the right channel at the right time. I think you'll see a lot of grocery retailers sort of bring their product price points down in this kind of market. You know, there's also, uh, just as an aside, as a consumer, I've noticed this when I go shopping, uh, there's, there's a lot of out-of-stock items uh, that have been filled with brands that I don't believe my retail retailers that I go to, the grocery retailers, had carried before. So there are a lot of brands that may be temporarily replacing uh, space by product uh, manufacturers that were unable to with demand, I mean, some of those may be permanently facing uh, legacy companies in their, their position on the shelf. But I, I do think on the grocery retail side, you're going to see a lot of probably more organic growth, I would say, than, than M&A. And those two, Aldi and Lidl, really have not grown through acquisitions. That's overseas parents just putting a lot of capital into growing in, in the U.S. Hmm. 
And in the article you wrote for our magazine, you described the disruption that's happened within the food service supply chain. But you also wrote that there are many well-capitalized buyers on the food service side waiting for the inevitable rebound. What types of opportunities will those buyers be looking for? On the food service side, do I kind of take a position between differentiating between way downstream restaurant concepts and those supplying them the food service distributors? I think on the food service distribution side, um, there will be increased uh, focus on markets where there's a very well-regarded operator. I think that's going to be very important. Um, doing value-added services. So, for example, if you're a produce distributor serving a market um, and you have a good reputation, good good history of operating, but you're also doing some value-added, maybe it's a preparing kind of uh, fruit, uh, vegetables for distribution, and leaving some of the labor that that a food service operator may have had to do themselves, pushing that into the distributor's hands. I think that that's going to be appealing increasingly for those looking at transactions, at least in the distribution side. And I also think we all experience this uh, when we attempt to go out and dine. We're not necessarily finding that that um, higher-end white tablecloth restaurant in the middle of town has reopened. Maybe they have some outdoor dining. Maybe they have takeout only. Um, but a lot of those are not going to be around for for, for that longer. So the casualties in, in the restaurant space are going to be the higher end, the, the local, uh, the mom and pop, what the food service distributed, distributor industry calls the street accounts. Those street accounts are going to really be depressed before they, they come back. So I do think what will make an appealing acquisition candidate will not just a good brand well positioned doing some value added, but also have a mixture of customers that may be a little bit more chain focused um, limited service, uh, focused customer base, and a little less of what had been traditionally the street accounts. An example of that would be you know, Papa John's the pizza chain had its best months ever during the pandemic. And it you know, makes sense. That's a concept that was really geared towards uh, delivery, uh, really set up to kind of work through a pandemic. Accounts like that, lower price point, limited service are going to be you know, more focused going forward, as well as an example, healthcare. So, no, I, I made the comment just a moment ago. Uh, part of the value added for a food service distributor is to wean some of the labor costs out of, from the customers. And healthcare facilities uh, are really in a mode now and had been even before the pandemic of you know, controlling their overhead expenses. And one of the areas where they attempted to do that was in the cafeteria. And you know, I'm, I'm generalizing. And there are a lot of examples of systems really uh, reducing the hours and then during the pandemic completely eliminating uh, availability of certain food items in cafeterias within the four walls. I think one thing that uh, food service will take up the slack of providing some solutions to healthcare facilities as well. I mean, I think that's kind of at, at the early stages, but, you know, Cisco has talked about that on some of their recent analyst calls as well. So zooming out from the consumer product space, I, I do want to ask you about the deal-making environment overall. So first, how accessible is credit right now for middle market deals? And is that having an impact on M&A activity? Yeah, the, the answer is it, it's still very tight. Um, but there are green shoots of uh, better availability and lower interest rates. But uh, one of the advantages that strategic public companies have is sort of very quick access to liquidity. And some of that was just to keep the lights on um, and make sure they had, had enough uh, availability on the balance sheets and cash. But some of that was also to make sure they were um, had the ability to transact opportunistically or with a more fervent acquisition strategy. 
new credits are a little bit tougher than, than existing credits. If you want to expand a current facility, that's a little bit more doable than creating a whole new facility for a brand new credit. Um, although it, it is happening, it's, it is coming back. Total leverage multiples seem to be inching up a little bit recently. Interest rates spiked during the pandemic, but seem to have come down a bit. Um, so it, it's moving in the right direction. I still think we're, we're a little bit away from um, you know, large credit facilities with appealing terms and conditions and low interest rates that we saw before the pandemic. I think we're, we're a couple of quarters away from that, but it is, it is fortunately moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. An obstacle to M&A that we keep hearing about is how difficult it is to value a company and to forecast future earnings given how much the pandemic has clouded everything. How is that challenge being addressed in the way that deals are structured? Yeah, it's a good question because you know, everyone's sort of figuring this out in real time. Um, I do think while there's always been the instances of having some form of transaction consideration either deferred or to be earned over time, I think that's going to be an area where that surfaces as an option to bridge any bid-ask spread in a transaction, um, perhaps more so than has typically been the case. And you're right, it is very difficult to forecast. Um, if you were hit very hard during the pandemic, and you know, you're going to really have to build up a case to make sure you're uh, structuring the ability to obtain evaluation, perhaps over time, that you would have achieved pre-virus, but it's going to take some structuring. You know, add to that some other little practicalities of transacting in this market. You know, a lot of these companies have accepted um, PPP money, and some of that has to be formed and defined around in terms of who's liable for that. If it, there's a, a chance that the government has to uh, get paid back for some of that, or if not all of that money, I mean, that's a smaller practical issue of just transacting in this market. And I do think, look, deferring some part of consideration has always been part of a, a, a largely, often been part of transaction structuring, I think it's just going to be an obvious area to help fill that gap to the extent there is one between the asking price and the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And do you expect to see any long-term changes to the M&A process coming out of COVID or are the changes we're seeing now just a temporary response to the current circumstances? You know, I do think, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So when you're a banker selling, you know, a business, um, you're often hit with very voluminous information requests. And you're often in the middle of diligence fielding, you know, question after question, and a lot of different territories get covered by various uh, diligence teams. And I, I remember years ago, uh, there would be a couple of questions around uh, IT and systems, and you know that that whole little section has now ballooned into these days to be three or four pages on cybersecurity. I do think one permanent change here will be the level of diligence that buyers go through on the supply chain. Um, there, I think they, 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 just as you have contingency plans for cybersecurity issues, you're going to probably see a necessary equivalent on, on the supply chain, you know, contingency plans. Uh, for example, food service distributors, you know, they had to switch gears and become sub haulers for those uh, distributing into the grocery chain. So, one question area could be, well, what have you had? What do you have in place so that if this happens again, it's not figuring out how to become some hauler? Do you have an existing plan in place? Uh, do you have an existing plan in place to uh, take advantage of what's called today a box program for hauling product to food banks? You know, so 
things that were figured out out of necessity during the pandemic kind of need to be tapered into kind of a programmatic response. Uh, I think that would be an area of, of, of diligence. And you know, same thing if you're a food processor, even further up the supply chain. Well, how quickly can you reconfigure your production lines to go from you know, production for food service to different level of production with labeling to go and be repurposed for grocery retail? I'm just using that as an example of like another area of possible diligence. Um, and if you're the producers themselves, and we all saw, uh, read about, you know, when the disruption hit, there were a lot of uh, uh, milk being, uh, animals being slaughtered because they couldn't be put through the processing facility because maybe they were too large. Contingency plans on how to handle that kind of uh, fillage and, and destruction um, will also be part of the you know, analysis of the supply chain. So I think the big difference is going to be an enlarged amount of diligence on supply chain um, strength and uh, uh, maneuverability and disruptive. And I, I do think also we are in a period where processes are just taking longer. And it's not just financing, although that's certainly a part of it. It is a deeper diligence. The work streams seem to be longer and, and more of them. Uh, I think that's temporary. Deals are taking a little bit longer to close right now, um, but I don't think that's going to be a permanent change. What about some of the functions that are being handled remotely now? I mean, I, I think some of that, I think people are eager to get back out in person, but do you expect any of the remote diligence functions will remain that people realize, hey, we can do this without having to travel? Yeah, you know, that's, I, I do think that's that's going to be the case. Um, I think there will be a, a combination. You'll probably have smaller teams on site, larger teams online. Um, Proximity is, is, is important as well. We have examples on, on the cell side uh, during the pandemic where we've had management presentations purely virtually. Uh, we've had a combination of virtual on site, but anything that's on site has to be handled obviously very carefully. Um, travel to and from a management presentation or facility tour is still very difficult, um, but if you're nearby and close, you're more likely to be able to do that. But I do think, yeah, that will probably be a permanent change. It's been you know, convenient to be able to do a lot of this uh, remotely. But you know, at the end of the day, when we're advising, just as an example, family-owned businesses, you know, the chemistry is really important. Um, it's not just a, a, a virtual transaction. You know, deals really need to make sure some chemistry kind of connects everybody. And, and that's hard to replace when you're doing it all remotely. You know, one of the reasons to have live uh, visits and, facility towards and management presentations is to gauge and evaluate that level of chemistry. Um, that's, that's a casualty during the pandemic, and that's always going to be a need. So there will be a balance, I think, afterwards between the convenience of doing things virtually, but needing not just to kick the tires, but needing some physical interaction to, uh, to evaluate chemistry. And you know, going, going back to the outset, uh, taking a step back, you know, we are in the period of, of hunkering down. We're, I believe emerging from that. And while there has been a focus on uh, doing things virtually, by being very practical with our spending, you know, we are going to come out of that. And I, I believe we will, and probably already are, further along than, than, than we thought. And we're all consumers, so how we behave is, you know, uh, it informs how I uh, cover my consumer markets as a, as a banker. You know, I, I have to buy things. I have to spend money. I have to uh, perform. I've got to uh, be productive out of the house, but that's all going to change. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll leave it there. Rob, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Katie.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.